You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, June 3rd. No end to the drama in the meme stock mania. Uh, there's so much more that we have to talk to about bonds, equity, credit. Plus, we are going to have a special dispatch from Ed Harrison and Ash Bennington. They are both at the Bitcoin conference in Miami. But for all this and more, I am joined by Real Visions, Weston Nakamura. Weston, how are you doing? Long time no see, Jack. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Weston, what time is it in Tokyo right now? Uh, 5.16 a.m., Friday. Five. And you, Friday. you've been up this whole time. You trade, you trade the New York, U.S. market, so you, you're on Eastern time, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we'll go with that. Pretty much. So, Weston, what were you looking at today? Uh, a lot of oddities today. AMC, uh, AMC uh, plummeted in early market hours because of a share offering, but the market soaked it back up, and it, it ended um, you know, well, well up on the, not on the day, but relative to that uh, low level. Then we have new entrants into the, the I, don't want to, I don't want to keep on saying meme stocks, but a new entrant into the you know, um, hyper-technical moves in, in stocks, Workhorse, which is a darling of electric vehicle investors. Um, it's a, you know, what's known as a spec, a little bit more speculative than your, your company like, like Tesla or a Ford Volkswagen. Um, that was up 28% today. That's the close. It was actually up much, much more earlier. Um, it, it faltered a little bit. Um, and by the way, the, the whole stock market was somewhat dragged down by this action. Um, I don't actually don't have the, the closing numbers in front of me, but the you know, NASDAQ was down, um, I think, about a point. Uh, yeah, basically 1%, 36 basis points down on S&P and Dow's down. Who, who looks at that? Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> the Dow is a fake index. The largest stock in the Dow is United Health Company. Because um, it's price weighted, not market weighted. So I don't, I don't consider the Dow a real index. Do not illegitimate, as far as I'm concerned. But Weston, I'm super long-winded. What did you make of today's action? Um, yeah. So obviously, AMC was a front and center. Um, I, I don't know if the stock, well, yeah, the stock certainly was. The the options certainly were. So we have about just under 600 million. Um, AMC volume, um, I believe you said it was like the largest, uh, it was the most volume traded, um, more than spies. Doesn't surprise me because once again, there is just an insane amount of open interest out there. So pre-market, the stock was actually, I think it was up, I don't know, 20, 20 something percent. Then you have this announcement come out <laughs> from, uh, corporate saying, uh, essentially get, saying the same thing that the hedge fund said yesterday, that we're, we're, we're overvalued and we're issuing shares. Uh, this is not the first time that they, they, they issue shares. They file with like, you know, file AKs and all that kind of thing. And the speculative call buyers I was talking about yesterday, the ones who, the, the, the froth traders, right? The ones who are buying crypto um, and then, you know, going from GME calls to crypto to Doge to back to AMC and so on and so forth. They don't care about an 8K filing. They they don't read that that stuff, and that's why in you know the pre market, 
what I, I sent out a note on the exchange saying, whatever happens with the stock today, understand that institutional investors read this, uh, these kind of documents and institutional investors trade in the pre-market. The price that you see right now with the stock being down pre-open is institutional investors. Everything thereafter is going to be by and large um, by the retail army, which even AMC acknowledges that their shareholder base is, hence the bribing of the popcorn and all that kind of thing. Uh, that said, though, you did see um, some last minute like shorts come into uh, AMC on the actual equity itself. So hedge funds are coming in. The, the, it's a very hard stock to borrow. It's very expensive to borrow. And um, yeah, so you saw like, you know, so somebody just starts slamming shares at the open, um, opening opening shorts. And, you know, it seemed to seem to have worked, but then the stock got back to flat and it's just basically all over the place. So we'll see what happens. Uh, expiry is tomorrow. And um, I think that about like about something like around half or so um, of the open interest is going to roll off. And uh, with that is going to go a lot of the, you know, the, the hedging exposure um, positions that the, the market makers hold and that they're all going to unwind that as well. So uh, if this story just keeps continuing to Monday and all that, then, you know, you could, probably, you could very well see potential upside there too. But for now, um, AMC has, is not like being abandoned. There are um, put options, there, there are put positions now being opened. This is not a forgotten sort of stock just because it kind of whipped around directionally today. And uh, it's spreading into, as you mentioned, some of the, some of those other we can call them meme stocks. Meme stocks. Yeah, Weston, the the note you referred to, the eight K, um, when they issued the stock, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote. They said, under the circumstances, we caution you against investing in our Class A common stock unless you are prepared to incur the risk of losing all or a substantial portion of your investment. This is on an official filing, so it, I kind of thought of it, Weston, like. You're watching TV and there's an advertisement for an allergy medication, and then it, they tell you about the side effects. Where they're like, side effects include, and then they they list all of these really nasty things that you would you'd never want. Um, but people that, they that, still bought the medications. That that is that is not that is not the appropriate analogy. The analogy is dare. I don't know if you know what dare is. Maybe you're too young. Drug abuse resistance education. It's like you know, like the, what you the like uh, you learn about you know not taking drugs in school. But instead, what happens is people, kids learn about drugs and are introduced to them via that very program. So basically, they're saying, like, don't buy this unless you want to have, like, speculative exposure with a ton of upside and, like, limited downside. If you, you know, that's, it's very dangerous. They're, that probably, you know, had people, like, um, watering up the mouth instead of uh, cautioning them away from it, right? So I, I think that it did the exact opposite. It's, it was a almost like a probably subconscious but marketing tool. So... <laughs> That, that's a good point. One other thing on um, the, the share issuance was just that because it was at such an extremely high price, they didn't have to uh, issue that many shares. They issued, um, I think, about 11 million shares, or yeah, 11.5 million shares. Um, and they were able to raise $722 million just with those 11 million shares. Whereas early in the, earlier in the year, they uh, sold 187 million shares for three dollars a share. So they rose earlier in the year. They they um, excuse me. They raised um, excuse me. Sorry, one second. Uh, so, uh, five, they, they, they they raised 597 million dollars early in this year, selling 187 million shares. And this time they raised more, 722 million dollars, raising selling only six percent as the number of shares. So it just goes to show. You know the eye-popping um, 
price appreciation and how that has a real impact on how this company can secure financing. And and the fact that um, the dynamics of supply and demand for share issuances all that doesn't mean anything when you're we're talking to a community of people that are buying Dogecoin, which is purposely meant to mock this system and be an inflationary cryptocurrency. Um, the, none of that matters. Price prices can can go, can go up with an increase of um, supply. Like they they're just turning like traditional you know textbook macroeconomics or or you know economics in general supply and demand cross like just on its head. So um, yeah, none of that is a deterrent. The, everyone like I said yesterday, nobody's buying this company because they want to own uh, common stock in you know AMC Entertainment Corp and have like voting rights and that's that's not, that's not what this is all about, right? This is just purely a buy high. Sell higher. Be prepared to lose 100% of your premium. You know, yellow trade. That's all it is. And, yes, and, and anybody I, I who's like analyzing it, you know, deeper than that and look, reading the 8K, you are comp you are missing. Like, you should stay away from that slot. Well, well, Weston, you're right that this is not a fundamental thing at all. It doesn't have to do with the cinemas that are opening. They're they're you know the the new um, app, the the new service. It doesn't have to do with any of that. It is not based on expectations of future earnings. It is purely sentiment and based on technicals. I will say, um, Weston, the fact that new shares have been issued, that that is a really important technical factor. Wouldn't you agree? Even if it is in a, a SEC filing. So you're saying because, because, because there's supply more supply. Yeah. So that that does actually matter more so than like uh, you know fundamentals on the earnings or something like that, right? Um, but again, Dogecoin is supposed to be like an inflationary um, asset, right? They, they they print more Dogecoin, they print more shares of, or they issue more shares of uh, AMC. This is like n none of those things have any effect on the price at all. In fact, it seems like because there is this like insatiable. Uh, unconditional bid for these these assets, be it AMC or Doge or whatever it is. Because of that, that's why they do take advantage of that and and issue, um, you know, more um, more supply. So, if anything, these traders are enabling these executives. It's not really you know, <laughs> the other way around. Um, but yeah, in a, in a normal environment, yeah, I would suppose that like an issue, a share interest, yeah, you get diluted down. This is, nobody is calculating like, oh, how many shares outstanding? What, you know, that's not that's not how how it works. None of these people are going to execute their their long call options. <laughs> like they're not going to, um, you know, um, you know, uh, exercise their options. Yeah, and I'm relieved that there's so much less of the uh, you know Wall Street mob, justice trader, people who are trying to get over on Wall Street. I don't think that is the primary motivation of people. I think they just want to make money. And I'm glad that we now can, can recognize that. And that, uh, in some cases, retail traders can do much, much better than institutional players. Uh, Weston, you mentioned short sellers. I think that AMC had a relatively high short interest of 20%. Of course, nothing compared to the 144 or something <laughs> percentage of, of GameStop, but yeah. relatively high. Um, do you think that? additional shorts added on? Because you said that you think that the early price weakness was short sellers. You know, do, you, do you think there was a bear raid? And do you think that bear raids even exist? Because I have some, um, my own thoughts on that. Well, 
So even before, so t today there were, you know, yeah, there was, there was like um, a lot of borrow right before the open. So I'm assuming that nobody's, I'm assuming that that's done um, off of that headline to be executed at the open. But even like yesterday um, after market, I was like looking at some of the data from like various brokerage um, accounts and all that. And yeah, by far AMC is the hardest stock to borrow. And it's like, you know, 10% funding and all that um, because of the relatively low float. So I, what I think is that just because there's borrow though, that doesn't mean that shares have been sold short. So if I were a hedge fund and I were out of my mind and did and had forgotten that Melvin just got blown up, you know, like three, four months ago uh, or, or in January, and I would decide to short one of these companies again, um, if I were to do that, what I would do is I'd borrow the stock, but you don't have to do it all in one clip, right? Just cause just the same way as you scale in and out of a position. So you short some, and then if the, knowing that the stock might double tomorrow, and if you do, you kind of average up in this case, and you short some more, and you short some more. And so they just keep piling in and in and in, um, and, and then eventually, and you just hold some dry powder, and eventually you get a day like today, and then you slam the hell of the stock down, and, and hopefully that will uh, manifest into a positive P&L. Um, I don't know that it will, because the stock is clearly very resilient to these sort of headlines. So, yes, uh, you mentioned that the AMC stock is very hard to borrow. That makes me think of the Turkish lira, which is also notoriously hard to borrow, um, and because it is it is uh, borrowed and sold short so much. Obviously, the price action in the Turkish lira has been abysmal, um, absolutely very very bad. And Wes, I know you have a lot of charts, so you I want to ask you um, some questions about that later. Um, by the way, the price action in Tesla today that had a also the price action was very abysmal. Um, that was down something like four percent. Um, but Weston, um, what I want to ask you because uh, Gabrielle Alvarez has a question: Can these meme stocks crash the market? What do you think about the relationship between the meme stocks and the market? Is it a micro bubble that's going to pop, or could you see some real contagion? So I don't know what by crash the market means. But um, can they impact the broader market? Yeah, they can. This was this is what I was talking about yesterday. This is the problem with um, this is why this is how Robinhood essentially saved the day by accident by putting a cap on the otherwise nonstop GME buying spree that was going on. Um, and you know, because if that were to continue, I mean, it's not it, was, it wasn't just Robinhood. That was interactive brokers was in the same situation too, right? So you're you're basically you're you know you require so much more margin from these from the system, and then you know you have these issues with T plus two settlement that they're trying to to shorten and all that like, and there's a number of things that go wrong um, in a number of different ways. But all you need is basically one of these players to kind of default or to, to not be able to you know um, come up with their margin, and you know somebody's left with holding the bag and. If it's an institutional player, I mean, the Fed is probably not in any a politically, um, you know, good situation to bail out an institution per se, and you can't really bail out individuals, um, and and so it's you know, some, somebody's going to be basically left back, and so I think that like broadly speaking, yeah, this is very balancing intensive for the market makers are getting torn up today. Um, and it's not a good, it's not a healthy thing for markets for this to kind to continue. So I'm I'm glad that AMC did like kind of cool today. But who knows? A lot more to get into. Forward. 
Um, Weston, I think it's time to go to our friends, uh, Ed and Ash, who are right now in Miami for the 2021 Bitcoin conference. They're sharing their experience. I'm hearing that the weather has not been so clement to them. I'm hearing that there's a little bit of a rainstorm, but I think that they've sort of gathered in a room to, to share their thoughts. So let's uh, play that clip. And then when we'll be back, Weston, I want to ask you about workhorse. I want to ask you about the Turkish lira. I want to ask you, you've got your eye on your European bonds, the dollar. People in the comments are questioning about reflation. Um, but first, let's go to this clip of Ed and Ash in Miami. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Hey, by the way, uh, here we are in Miami. You can see behind us, uh, we have like a, uh, we're in a hotel. That's because we just got downpoured on. We've only been here one day, but we're at the Miami Bitcoin Conference. Ash and I are in the same room in person for the first time in 15 months. And we've got some thoughts about. Uh, how we're thinking about what's happening in the crypto space and in global macro, how those two are coming together here in Miami. Ash, why don't you tell us uh, what's uh, what we're thinking about? Yeah, you know, it's great to be here. First of all, we apologize for the quality of the video. We're literally shooting this from my iPhone here. This is like guerrilla filmmaking. Uh, you get dropped in uh, to this Bitcoin conference. I've been here uh, since last night. I got down uh, very late. And it's just been an incredible sort of vibe uh, when you get here. I don't want to use the word euphoric because that implies like all kinds of bubblicious uh, types of sentiments. That's a different conversation. Uh, but what's happening really on the ground here is there is a, a very positive uh, sentiment uh, here. Uh, you know, the reality is, as I was, I was just, uh, Ed and I just had lunch together. Um, we were talking about this uh, with some people from the macro side, uh, and the reality is, there's a feeling here on the ground uh, when you go to this conference, when you're out at the bars, when you're at the cafes, when you're at the restaurants. Uh, that the people who are in crypto, this is the perception, this is the vibe at least, uh, is that uh, you and all your friends are the smartest kids in the room. And that is a very intoxicating uh, feeling. Uh, and so it seems to me like there's very positive sentiment coming into the space. Uh, you know, obviously this is, a, this is something that I'm talking about here from a very sort of short-term uh, tactical angle, but there's definitely a feeling of, of just exuberance about this technology. There's a feeling of validation. I think people have been locked up in their apartments uh, you know, for 12, 14, 15 months, uh, and people are out, uh, they're hanging out with their friends, there are Lambos rolling down the street, their music uh, bumping off the tops of the, of the drop tops. There's just definitely a feeling here of this is the place to be right now. Yeah, and how, you know, when you say that, I'm thinking about Miami, the song by Will Smith, you know, talking about his drop top. You know, um, the interesting bit for me, actually, because I've been here for a day and I went to dinner last night that was hosted by Real Money Investors. You know, these are institutional guys. And the sense that I'm getting is that Miami is a sea change. It's a, it's a sea change in terms of how institutional money is thinking about crypto as a space because everyone's coming together at this conference. This is the first sort of, you know, post-pandemic you know, full reopening conference, and they're saying, okay, now we can meet people face-to-face -face in the way that we did before. Yeah. Let's get into what this space is doing, what's happening here, what's the regulatory environment, 
what are the opportunities going forward? How do we as institutional global macro individuals get access allocation to this particular sector? That's what I'm seeing people saying. They're saying we're interested, but we want to, we're interested only if there are, uh, you know, above board ways for us to get into the space. And we want to find comfort based upon the conversations that we have here in Miami uh, that we can do that. Yeah, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, that's the, what I just described earlier was the mood here. Uh, on the more substantive level, as uh, Ed points out, I think that's exactly right. Uh, the word diversity comes to mind. There's a very diverse array of people here. Uh, you have the cool uh, tech kids uh, in T-shirts. You have the folks who are from the macro side. You have folks who are from the traditional investing side in suits. Uh, there really is a sense, and I think Ed's right, there's definitely more skepticism, obviously, as you would expect, uh, on some of the more seasoned investors' uh, behalf. I think that will surprise no one. Uh, but there's also the fact that, look, they're here. They're on the ground. They're asking the questions. They're exploring the opportunities. Uh, and they're here because they want to understand what this technology will do in the real world. I've heard a little bit of skepticism, as I know Ed has uh, as well, about what the real world applications uh, for these things, uh, for these emerging technologies, these emerging networks, these emerging protocols, what those applications are. But the reality is uh, traditional uh, investors, uh, the suits, so to speak, for lack of a better term, uh, these are folks who, who have a lot of other things they could be doing. And they got on a plane and they came down to Miami and they're here to listen. And I think that in itself is an important lesson. You know, I would, uh, anecdotally, let me just tell you two things. I think Ash will tell you the second, but the first is, is that, as you know, I've been like basically living in my basement for 15 months. So I have no idea what people think of real vision in terms of uh, adoption and uh, recognition. I've already been recognized twice. I, you know, Ash and I, we went uh, for lunch to this place, uh, the Capitol Grill, we went into the back of this room. Uh, it would turn out not to be a party. And then people were, looked at me and they said, real vision? And, uh, and then I saw Ash and I thought, yeah, yeah, definitely real vision. And we had a conversation with them. Uh, we you know, exchanged niceties and talked about uh, you know, the crypto and the global macro environment coming together, potentially a, uh, interviews, et cetera. And based upon that, Ash afterwards, he was telling me, you know what, I've been here literally what, 12 hours? And I, and I said, you probably have like three, four interviews. He said, no, you know, potentially six people that I've met who are interview worthy, but something to add, you know, from a crossover perspective between what's happening in the global macro space and what's happening in the crypto space. Yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, the first potential interview I met, uh, I didn't even have to leave New Jersey. I came to Newark Airport uh, and the person behind me in line uh, was a VC, and she said to me, uh, so what do you do? And I said, I work at Real Vision. She said, I've got an interview scheduled with Haley Drasnan sometime next week. So, you know, it's pretty incredible, I think, to, to, to be here. There is so much exuberance. I know I keep repeating it, but it's such a, an important point, I think. There's a feeling, I think, almost uh, of, a, of a kind of a, a new world emerging. Look, everyone's been locked up. It's easy to understand how there's that, that false sense of the uh, caterpillar uh, emerging from the cocoon uh, that can be pushing sentiment higher. Uh, particularly on the crypto side. But I think there are real opportunities. I think the diversity uh, of the people we've seen here speaks to that point very clearly, as Ed points out, the union of traditional finance, traditional macro uh, types of perspectives uh, with crypto. We're going to be uh, reporting back in some form or another over the next few days 
when we have more sentiment, uh, more uh, more substance rather than simply just sentiment, I'm obviously going to be meeting uh, with a number of people. Uh, there are a lot of things that are going on. I expect there'll be some new projects announced. Uh, there will be uh, some new things that will come out of this conference, as there always uh, are. I mean, I'm keeping a special eye on price action, as I mentioned, because of the sentiment. Uh, but it's a really interesting place to be, and we're, we're definitely going to come back to you with more substance over the next few days. And that's it. Uh, I hope that you guys enjoyed what we have to say. We're enjoying it down here in Miami. And uh, uh, let us know in the comments uh, what you want to hear when we come back uh, from the conference. Thanks for joining us. More to come. And we're back. Weston, wasn't that interesting hearing from Ed and Ash? I'm very jealous that they're there. Yeah, yeah. Not so jealous of the rain. I'm glad uh, we, I have a roof over my head. Uh, but Weston, uh, Bitcoin obviously- I have, I have a roof over my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm saying I'm glad that we're inside. Um, yeah, but you know, Bitcoin and crypto, it's been consolidating um, since the very large sell-off of a few weeks ago. And there's actually a question from Claudio Delgado who asks a question not from YouTube, but actually from the Real Vision Exchange, which is um, you know the engagement platform where you um, are the you know you, you you do a lot of posting, you 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 run that exchange. But Claudio, uh, he has a question for you, Weston. Uh, he asks: In the past 24 hours, USDTRY, that is the U.S. dollar to the Turkish lira, is at a 52-week high, and the uptrend seems to correlate with Bitcoin's bullish behavior. Weston, have you done any analysis to identify what's the breaking point for the U.S. dollar, Turkish lira, um, with Bitcoin, and what seems to be a potential point of consolidation? So, Weston, you've made a post about this exchange. So, uh, can you share your, your, your thinking in some depth? Because I think it's important for people to, to understand. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Sure, absolutely. So I did write this. Um, I it's gonna be. I think it's gonna be in the description, like the links for it. So the Turkish lira and the the Bitcoin thing that I I went through it yesterday and then overnight I just got a ton of uh, more questions about it, which signals to me that there's a lot of people out there who do not realize that this is a key core driver of Bitcoin and gold for that matter, non fiat assets, not just Bitcoin. Um, is the Turkish lira. The Turkish lira is a very, very important currency for several reasons, um, and it can be systemic and global uh, of a problem um, for many reasons as well. Most just very simply because if the the lira basically continues to go downwards, um, there are several European banks in particular, like BBVA from Spain, that have a ton of exposure, and that might drag in like the ECB and, and, and all that, and then becomes a SEC. But um, so to, to answer the question, I, it's basically in what I had written about, but the relationship, the, the correlation right now is that uh, USD TRY up, BTC USD down, right? So in other words, if the Lira is weakening, the, uh, the Bitcoin would strengthen. That is not how it's typically um, historically been. Historically, for the last several years, throughout Bitcoin's like existence almost, it's been USD TROI higher and BTC uh, TROI or BTC whatever, USD whatever, also higher. In other words, when, when the lira is getting destroyed, the Turkish citizens need to get out, they need to salvage their um, 
their net worth somehow. And this is a very easy way for them to do so because they're already <clears throat> connected to crypto with the, uh, you know, um, uh, their crypto, their early crypto adoption. And because of the fact that it's hard to buy gold and all that. So in November of last year, when they started, when the CBRT started to at least get the perception what's in, of what's the CBRT, sorry, can you explain that? Uh, Central Bank Republic of Turkey, the 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 uh, Erdogan's uh, head of HR, um, you know, department uh, for the central bank, uh, they've gone through. They're on the fourth now uh, head of the central bank in the last three years, um, and so the second of the fourth. Uh, came in and essentially he was seen as this markets guy and he was seen as somebody who would be under you know who would understand basic economics like we raise rates to combat inflation not that's that doesn't cause inflation things like that and he did start hiking rates and so turkey actually for a moment starting in november last year actually got some credibility from markets that they know how to navigate monetary policy and maybe you know find their way uh, out of this this death spiral of of the lira, um, and when that happened, that's when you started to see that relationship of you know uh, lira down, bitcoin up, that inverse. And from that point until basically a few days ago, that's how it's been. So when you see USDTRY going up, BTC USD would go down, and that would happen pretty you know tick for tick. That would happen kind of on a longer term chart and and anything in between, but this past um, this past what was it weekend or this past week the last few days, what you're observing is now a recorrelation back to how it's historically been. Uh, so what we're getting out of is not like a like a regime shift. We're just getting back into how things used to be all along, and that is when the Turkish lira it would just continue to hit record lows, which is which is does regularly. Um, people are getting out and, and buying um, gold, which is why, you know, a, a large reason why gold is also doing well over the last month, as well as um, as well as Bitcoin. So if, as far as technicals, I don't really, I don't do like technical, technical analysis. I don't really know from that end. But I will say, though, that it is very early to kind of spot like a major shift and like uh you know the polar the polarization shift um from inverse to positive correlation um so you'll probably need to like see a little bit more uh for that and that could also switch on a dime again but the standard kind of default setting is uh usdtry or eurtry or um you know we'll quote it try jpy but Lira against other G5 currencies uh, weakening means demand for Bitcoin and Bitcoin up. Uh, that's the standard default way, not what we've done over the last few months. That, that's basically an aberration. So I think that the normal way of doing things, uh, not the way it is now, but the normal way is that the Lira weakened, and then that is a uh, you know a tailwind for Bitcoin and gold. And that makes sense because as Turkish uh, folks, as they see their currency depreciate, they seek a safe haven in gold uh, and or or Bitcoin. They're just trying to get the hell out of their. They're just trying to salvage their. You know, I mean, I feel terrible for them. Like, we don't understand what that's like. Like, we if, unless we've lived in, I personally haven't. Unless we've lived in somewhere where you're seeing inflation, you're not debating inflation. You're seeing 
the destruction of the value of your you know your 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 life really um this is this is like this is exiting the you know uh, a, a movie theater on fire right there's no there are no limit orders right there's just a market order like at, at any cost so that's um that's why you see like gold um and and bitcoin all that those were hitting record highs against the lira like while BTC USD was still not even halfway back to its previous record high uh, during 2020. 2020 was if just read if you read the art, uh, the article that I posted on the exchange, you, you'll you know you'll give you a good background about it. But 2020 was the year of the lira um, controlling f- um, fiat assets, or, or, or I'm sorry, uh, non-fiat assets, gold, uh, silver, um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, cryptocurrencies, all that. So. Uh, it's just that people will take a look at that but, and, and keep your got, eye on the mirror. We've got another question from Oliver Anderson, also from the exchange. And he wants to know, Weston, you've been so great at identifying flows, both for meme assets and non-meme assets alike. I love that sentence. I was wondering if you'd expand on how you identify where the flows come from and if there are any tricks to figure out how uh, other people might go after this. All right. I'll, first, I want to say... Um, Oliver Anderson uh, has a brilliant video on the exchange um, about, you know, so he, he works in film and he's literally a, a narrative creator and he approaches, mar- he looks at markets and narratives through that lens as somebody who does that for a living. So it's really, really fascinating. Amazing um, uh, exchange contributor. Thanks a lot, um, Oliver. Um, so, and thank you for that. Um, yeah, that's that's my approach. My approach is this. Everybody, like, not everybody, but I'd say most people, what they do is they'll look at the asset, right? They look at the, the stock, they look at the, 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 you know, the bond yield, they'll look at whatever the asset is, the cryptocurrency, and then they'll assign some sort of, you know, fair value to it or a price target or, or, or whatever. This, this should be at this price or whatever, right? That's not what I do because um, the only thing that, that determines prices on anything, on any financial instrument, is just flows and behavior of the capital. Like simply this, net capital in equals price up, net capital out equals price down. That's the only thing that determines it. Fundamentals don't determine it. Central banks don't, don't determine asset prices. Um, regulations don't determine asset prices. No, nothing determines asset prices except for the capital flowing in and out of it. So instead of looking at the asset itself, I turn around and I look at the source of and behavior of capital. And that is what kind of dictates me. So it's not like I'm looking at the Turkish lira for no reason, right? I'm looking at what the behavior of, you know, of, of people are um, and, and what the overlapping sort of assets are. Um, and that's basically where I, where I start. And so I, I've seen like, you know, that's kind of how I am able to see things that seem extremely obvious to me, but that a lot of people just totally miss. Um, I, I mean, I, I have just countless examples of them, but like, um, and every time I get pushback from them and some fundamental argument, then I know that there's alpha to be made in that, in that trade, because there's some clown out there who's creating a wonderful, like, you know, alpha opportunity. Um, but, um, yeah, so the, like the Lira is like, you know, I've, I've been looking at that for like the last four years or so. Um, but the lira I got, I started looking at is because Japan retail traders uh, are taking massively long leverage positions, going long the Turkish lira, 
Nobody else is going long the lira on purpose, by the way. It's just like Japan retail, but they're doing and so hey, because. Hey, Weston, can you t tell people why they're doing it? It's they don't just love being in a currency that's very unstable. There's a reason, right? Yeah, there's well, there's a reason that you and I did an RVDB uh, after uh, hours with. Um, they have a clever marketing department um, with the cartoons and all that, but they do it because they look at nominal yields, and there's a twenty percent nominal yield spread between JGBs and and and, and Turkish and uh, and um, uh, Turkish yields. So they see that, like, um, you know, so they'll they'll trade the swap and and swaps, and for some reason, uh, initial margin and um, like the uh, on swaps for like Japan retail trading is like fractions that of if you were to do the same with like dollar yen or some completely non obscure you know FX pair. So it's very easy to get sucked into it if you're I guess like Japan retail because they're searching for yield. They've been yield starved here forever, um, and and they're also very risk averse too. Like because again, it's kind of like the like the meme stock trader like th there's japan sitting on 40 trillion of household uh net worth more than half of which is cash um hence the deflation but there's they have money to punt in the market and they, they this is partially what they do and so um i started looking at that i started looking at that that sort of behavior and uh i started to realize that there was a correlation and i started to realize that like bitcoin and nikkei had a correlation in uh 2017 starting september of 2017 to the very end of uh, 2017, there was a sudden out of nowhere, like uh, 2000 point, like, you know, almost 20% rally in Nikkei for no reason. And the reason was because all of these like new traders who came in via Bitcoin, sucked into Bitcoin, were introduced to financial markets and started going long, like leveraged uh, Nikkei 2x, 3x leveraged uh, ETFs. And at that time, Bitcoin had a higher correlation to the Nikkei than dollar yen did. And I would show that chart to, this is when I was like working in institutional finance, and I would show that chart to people, and some people got it, and some people were like, that's ridiculous. I'm like, this it's not ridiculous. This is like, I didn't draw this by hands. Like, this is what's happening. But so there are people, and then those people, that, because those people exist, I know that there's like, you know, some, if I could find some way to exploit that, you know, there's stuff out there. So yeah. I know this is a very long answer that, that really gave nothing, but I, I'll give some examples. No, no, that, that was important. And it, it wasn't that chart on Bitcoin being more correlated to uh, the, the Nikkei than the dollar yen was. That is fascinating. And I can imagine people saying, like, that's, you're just like a, you know, you're just a chart guy and you just searched a hundred different things and you found the one thing that looks strange. And I feel like often when there's a brilliant chart, like the most brilliant charts and they're new, and they enter the foray and people don't really understand them, those are the charts that are most susceptible of being accused of chart crime. So I'm not saying that chart crime isn't a thing, but I think that uh, sometimes that, that allegation of chart crime is has been uh, bandied about perhaps a little bit too, too loosely. Wes, and I'm glad you talked about flows. That obviously was on my mind today with the insane volumes that we saw out of AMC and, and Workhorse. In fact, and we can, we can put this chart up, AMC, uh, was the most traded stock in the entire Russell 3000. That is a very large basket. And that is the most single uh, traded stock by a factor of almost three. And by the way, number two is a very small uh, stock, GTT Communications, which I've never heard of. And number three is, is Workhorse. So, um, Weston, what does it mean to you when the most traded stocks are these 
meme stocks and not say the the typical dominators that such as Apple, the Fangs, and and the like. Um. So there's actually. Um. By the way, AMC. Um. Or, or yeah, that's that's actually the. It's it's more than spy, so it is the number one, you know. But uh, including the ETFs as well, so it's it's yeah. And yeah, and spy volume. is the ETF that's for the S and P five hundred. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. bigger than even bigger than I said. Yeah. It's crazy, crazy. Yeah. Um. So what does it mean? Um. Okay. So there's, there's this momentum ETF. There's a few of them. Uh, the so biggest one. There's the biggest one is MTUM. There's a few like I think JP Morgan has one. There's there's, there's like three or four of them out there. Um. These momentum ETFs are momentum ETFs, um, and so they they basically are benchmarked uh, to MSCI, uh, the momentum index, which had a rebalance. Uh, I think like I don't know, maybe five six trading days ago, somewhere around there. Um, the rebalance is uh, was pretty significant um, because. When you think of when we usually think of momentum, like Jack, what do you think of when you think of like momentum stocks? Things I mean, that are going up, you know. Things like that are the, going up. Yeah, but like what what specific stocks over the last like you know couple of couple of like years would you would say Apple? Easy, yeah, big tech, big cap technology growth stocks, not value stocks, not financials, not energy at all. But Weston, it's my understanding. That this is now no longer the case. No longer the case. Okay, so I'm looking at it right now. Uh, they, they they did a rebalance. So financials. Okay, financials used to be 1.6% uh, of the um, index. It's now the top at 33%. Um, and then at the same time, uh, tech, which used to be 40% of the momentum um, index, is now less than half of what what it used to be. It's at 17%. Um, Notably, within tech, Apple, Microsoft, Adobe, NVIDIA, these are all previous top 10 holdings within this particular ETF and this, this index and everything that's benchmarked to this index. Apple, Microsoft, uh, Adobe, and NVIDIA are no longer at all represented. They have the 0% weighting. They're not in the index at all. Consumer discretionary, Amazon and Nike, those are both out too. Instead, what we have is JP Morgan, uh, Berkshire Hathaway Class B shares, Bank of America and Wells Fargo are now in the top 10. Energy sector, which had a 0% weighting previously, now has a 2% weighting. So, um, the, this like, you know, this financials and energy like outperformance on the, on the year, um, while it may seem like you might have missed the upside because you're looking straight, strictly at the price, the price like outperformance doesn't necessarily mean that it's crowded. I'm not saying that it is or isn't, but you shouldn't look at it that way either. Um, and that there are a lot of people that are probably very skeptical um, to go long financials or go long, you know, uh, energy, um, especially with oil at 70. Like, how much further could we go? How much further can the yield curve steepen for like net interest margin on on banks and this and that. Um, but you know, now that it's in this like ETF, if, should this ETF continue to get inflows, um, you're going to see. A, it's very interesting that you're going to start seeing the financials and energy like outperform. But because of the weighting of SPX, the index itself is probably not going to do anything. <laughs> it might even be down. So you're, you're going to get these like you get huge outperformance if you're looking at beta versus the index and like you know, like JP Morgan or a, or a Bank of America or whatever maybe. 
um, versus SPX, which might just be down or flat um, because they their their big heavyweights got booted out. Like Google and all that's still in there, but like uh, this is this, so this was a very significant rebalancing, um, and it's no longer just kind of fund managers individually like um, saying, yeah, we like you know we like growth over value. And I, I really hate those like overly generic generic categories, but. Um, it's no longer that. Now it's like grouped together in this in this ETF as uh, you know whatever billions uh, AUM, and so now it's going to manifest in markets. Yeah, and I think if you look at the high beta ETFs, there it's even more stark. Where you have uh, energy, which used to be zero or very close to zero as part of the high beta index, and now it's something like. 18 or 19%. And that really is crazy because energy is a small fraction of the S&P 500. I think it used to be 1.5% if you take the XLE relative to SPY or, or just of that sector. And now, of course, it's much bigger because we've had that rally. But, but it really speaks to the momentum and the size, the strength of the rally in financials and energy that you've had tech titans like Tesla trade down and trade much more down today as it happens. And things like Apple have traded sideways. Uh, yes, Google, Google has been up, and there's been Apple's, really, a, Apple's in a bear really, market, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the YT, what the year-to-date performance is, but basically, the big players have not been lifting the index up. It really has been the little guys at the bottom, the the energy stocks that have uh, really been leading the charge. Weston, my question for you is: We now have a very accurate snapshot of the past year in price action. The baton was handed from tech, let's say, to SPACs, and now it is firmly in the hands of energy and financials. Weston, what, if anything, can we interpret from this going forward? What does this tell you about perhaps new incentive structure for fund managers? Or is this really only a historical snapshot and we can't look forward? Uh, we can never look forward. So like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's happening presently, right? Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to make of this. Like, what, I'll, what I'll say is that there, there's... I think that because of this, um, and first of all, this only works if there are continued inflows into the momentum ETFs um, that are benchmarked off of this particular index, of this MSCI index. Um, but should that happen, I mean, you're going you're gonna to get, uh, I, I, every year is the worst for active management, but this, this is going to be especially bad for active management. Because, I mean, how many... Fund managers are, are willing to go long, you know, um, at like energies or financials or, or any of these, right? Like, uh, you know, everyone, you, you have to hold an Apple or a, I actually know. don't know about that, Weston, because, because Apple and Google and Facebook, because they're such a huge part of the S&P 500, if you have run an active strategy, then you're most likely going to be actually underweight those names because no one's going to pay you two and 20 you know, or whatever to just own Apple that are, so I actually think that from what I've read, like Corey Hofstein's paper on liquidity cascades, is that active managers tend to be underweight um, the FANG. So actually, it, they could have active could have you know they, they could bloom in the desert, so to speak. But do they, does he does he address this term closet indexing? I, I don't know if he does in the paper, but I'm sure he knows what that is. What is closet in indexing? Closet indexing is basically you haven't done your job as an active manager, um, which is to beat the index. Um, because your uh, fundamental analysis, you know, like Excel spreadsheet, sort of uh, five-year DCF modeling and all that is no longer relevant. And 
you decided to not own Apple, and then they, you know, come out. This is what, like, in 2019, like towards the end of 2019, Apple's been underperforming all year. Suddenly, they come out and like they show that, like, oh, we have done like, you know, like 10% of our buyback when we have billions left, and then everybody rushes with Apple, and then Apple just has a massive outperformance because you have to own it. Because if you don't, it's your job. And you have to own it by the end of the year, too. Um, you have a lot of, um, you know, um, underperformance to make up for. So, um, but what, 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 I, what I'll say, though, is that um, I think that if you actually have this strategy of going long, at, you know, one of these sort of non-fang large cap names that are um, under-owned and relatively good value and and all that kind of thing, and then you short the index, which is what a lot of hedge funds do, the index is no longer going to be this unconditionally up thing because it's dominated by the Apples and Microsofts and all that. The SPX might, you know, like E-minis, whatever it may be, might actually perform like a somewhat of a normal broad-based index rather than a cluster of five or six tech stocks and then 495 miscellaneous stocks, you know, in, in the other half. So um, long, long single name short, the index might actually finally work um, as a as a standard, you know, uh, strategy. Yeah, Weston, we've run over time. It's been an absolute pleasure. There, there are some topics we haven't had a chance to touch, like the Fed taper talk, the, the Fed selling its uh, corporate bonds. That we addressed that yesterday, though, right? And then, yeah, and then what happened, right? Like the um, LQD is fine today, right? So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, who's worried about corporate bond default risk? I, I don't even know if, if bond portfolio managers are. They're, they're thinking about interest rate risk, but credit default risk is just like a, kind of an afterthought. Of course, I'm being a little bit um, you know, hyperbolic. But we also didn't talk about European bonds, and we didn't talk about the very shrewd trade that existed in Workhorse. Um, there's a call spread that some, some shrewd traders noticed a dislocation there. Weston, perhaps you and I could talk about that in the Real Vision Exchange after hours, which we'll film right after this. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I'm happy to do that. If we have exchange questions, I'm happy to take them there too. So, brilliant. Well, um, thank you so much, Weston, and thank you to everyone who is watching, whether uh, a Real Vision member or if you're watching on YouTube. Um, thanks so much, and we'll, we'll see you soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.